Hey guys, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast that I know you're going to love. Do you like travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by a true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and WTF stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater. Each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. Every town has a dark side. Just how many times exactly can a woman walk down the aisle and exchange I do's? One is perfect. Two is understandable, I guess. Three raises some eyebrows, and by the time she gets to five, you may be looking at a serious problem. Starting in 1950, and then spanning the next 41 years, Ohio native Betty Newmar got married five times and gave birth to three children from three of her spouses. There wasn't anything extraordinarily strange about Betty's situation, except that each and every husband had died under questionable circumstances. I'm Andrew Fitzgerald. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Every Town, where we focus the spotlight on Betty, aka the Black Widow Grandma. So let's head down to North Carolina now and find out if Betty was in fact a serial husband killer. 
Or perhaps she was cursed as a series magnet for a life full of misfortune. In July of 1986, Harold Gentry was shot six times in North Carolina. A police investigation revealed no motive and no suspect for his murder, so his case didn't go anywhere and eventually turned cold. Harold was Betty Newmar's fourth husband and she was only implicated in his death when Harold's brother Al relentlessly pursued over decades to reopen the case. See, Al was certain Betty was his killer, and he begged investigators to take another look at the mystery surrounding Harold's death, patiently visiting the sheriff's office dozens of times. So, did it ultimately pay off? Well, let's go back a bit. Betty Walden Johnson came into this world in 1931. Born to a coal miner father in Ironton, Ohio, a town along the West Virginia border, she and her family lived a life filled with hard work and struggles. After finishing high school in 1949, 18-year-old Betty plunged into marriage her first with 19-year-old Clarence Malone in November of 1950. Betty told her friend she wanted to leave Ironton for a better life, but 13 months later in December of 51, she claimed in court papers that Clarence was abusing her. However, it's unclear what exactly happened to that complaint and what details were in it. Their marriage could have possibly been strengthened when their only son, Gary, was born on March 13, 1952. But it didn't save their union, and Betty and Clarence parted ways a few years later. After their divorce, Clarence remarried twice and started an auto shop business in Medina, a small town that sits just southwest of Cleveland, Ohio. Then in November of 1970, Clarence was shot once in the back of the head, execution style, outside his business. It was clearly a case of homicide, although there were no signs of a robbery. This was the first time Betty experienced the loss of an ex-husband, and she clearly had nothing to do with his death, as clarified later on by one of Clarence's brothers. After all, It had been two decades since they divorced, and there were rumors that the auto shop owner had angered members of a local motorcycle gang. So that was quite a coup. (laughs) Listen to your naps work. Now going back, shortly after Betty's marriage with Clarence was dissolved, she met her second husband, James Flynn, who was four years her senior. Little is known about James, as well as how their paths crossed, but they eventually got married on February 9, 1953. Gary, Betty's son from her first marriage, eventually took his stepfather's last name. The couple was also blessed with a daughter they named Peggy, 
and things were looking good for this modern family. However, that all ended when in 1955, James died due to uncertain circumstances. A couple of stories about James's death then circulated around young Betty. She first told investigators that James froze to death inside a truck while in New York City. But she later on asserted that he was shot to death while standing on a pier like some 1950s mafia movie. Back then, investigators weren't able to confirm much about James's life or death, and no evidence actually linked Betty to his murder, so eventually the case just fell through the cracks. Dr. Laura Petler, in 2008, after the murder case of Betty's fourth husband was reopened, said, There is a death certificate for James Flynn in New York. That's about as far as we were able to get with that. In the early 60s, records in Florida confirmed that Betty was living in Jacksonville and carrying the name Betty Flynn. She enrolled in a beauty school, which paved the way for her to work as a beautician. And then, like a perfect match, she met Navyman Richard Sills, who was smitten by the charm of the Ohio native. And it didn't take long before Richard soon asked for her hand in marriage. For the third time, she became a wife, and this too was short-lived, because on April 18th, 1967, police found Richard's body in the bedroom of the couple's home in Big Coppet Key, Florida. Betty narrated to the police that they were alone and arguing when Richard suddenly pulled out his gun and shot himself in the side of his body. A strange place to shoot oneself, but... Then again, stranger things have happened. Peggy, Betty's daughter from her second marriage, was 11 years old at the time and in the room next door when she heard them arguing, followed by a single gunshot. She said of the incident years later, He was lying on the bed and was snorting, and then he rolled off the bed and I asked the paramedic if he was dead, and they said to get me out of there. That's all I remember. Authorities ruled it as a suicide. However, decades later, the authorities re-examined the case of Richard Sills. They uncovered Navy medical examiner documents which revealed Richard may have been shot twice contrary to what Betty told police, that her deceased third husband died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The medical report indicated that Richard's heart was pierced by one bullet from a 22 caliber pistol while his liver may have been hit by a second one. However, no autopsy was performed. Florida investigators wanted to exhume the remains of Richard in 2009 for forensic examination, but unfortunately, the legal period of time to pursue the case had expired. Florida law sets a time limit on prosecution for some categories of homicide, including involuntary manslaughter, but not on premeditated or first-degree murder.
After Florida authorities closed the case, Richard Sills's son from a previous union, Michael Sills, asked the Naval Criminal Investigative Service Cold Case Squad to investigate his father's unsolved case. He said that based on his father's military file, Richard was not likely to commit suicide. Michael said in an interview, As far as I'm concerned, she did it. There's too many inconsistent things about it. After three marriages, one of which ended in divorce and two culminated in the deaths of her husbands, Betty didn't seem to have even a tinge of trauma falling in love and marrying another man again. Shortly after her third husband died, Betty met Harold Gentry, who was in the U.S. Army and stationed in Florida. And this lady moves fast because nine months later, on January 19, 1968, they exchanged marital vows, followed by the birth of her daughter named Kelly a year after. As a military man, Harold was stationed in different places, so his wife and daughter often moved with him. But after 21 years of service, he decided it was time to retire. The Gentry family moved to Harold's hometown in Norwood, North Carolina in the late 1970s. They built a house on a property given as a gift to Harold by his sister and brother-in-law. And for more than 15 years, the Gentry family seemed to savor an idyllic family life, but all that was shattered when two successive tragedies befell the family. In 1985, the first ill-fated incident involved Betty's firstborn child, Gary. When Gary grew up, he started a family, and while he lived in Lake County, Ohio, while working at a nuclear power plant, his wife Cecilia and children were living in Michigan. Sadly, during a welfare check, Gary was found shot to death in his apartment, which investigators ruled as suicide as a note was left behind by the deceased. However, some of Gary's family were skeptical about the suicide from the jump. Cecilia claimed that her mother-in-law, Betty, whom she described as just not a nice person, collected a $10,000 life insurance payout following her son's death. To the outside world, Betty was a diminutive, white-haired grandmother cooperated beauty shops, attended church, and raised money for charities. But Jeff Cartinson, Gary's stepson, saw a different, uglier side of the woman. Betty engaged in fistfights at family gatherings and hurled obscenities and belittled relatives. Jeff told investigators, she would act one way in public especially in church, and another behind closed doors. He described his stepdad as far from perfect, but not someone who would commit suicide. When they learned of Gary's death, Jeff and his mom rushed to his stepdad's apartment before Betty could get there. There they found $16,000 in cash and a cache of guns and ammo stashed beneath Gary's bed. Later on that night, 
Betty and her fourth husband, Harold, arrived in Ohio. Gary's body was cremated the following day, and his ashes, kept in an urn, were taken home by Betty to North Carolina. Jeff also disclosed that in 1987 he lived with Betty in Augusta, Georgia after he got divorced. However, she got him fired from his two jobs, meddled in his relationship with his girlfriend, and offered to take out a $100,000 life insurance policy on him. He feared for his safety and thought that Betty had plans to kill him, thus he returned to Michigan as soon as he could. An even more shocking death then happened in the family in July of 86, just a year after her son Gary committed suicide. And this time, there was lots of controversies, so much so that it drew international media attention and led to Betty being dubbed as the Black Widow Grandma. Harold Gentry, Betty's fourth husband of 18 years, was murdered and it sent shockwaves throughout the small town of Norwood, North Carolina. He was a beloved member of the community and had no known enemies to speak of, so it was difficult to understand why he was shot six times right inside the home he shared with his wife. Harold had sustained multiple gunshot wounds, and investigators theorized he was killed in an ambush-style attack. Forensic criminologist Dr. Laura Petler said, there was a sunken living room in that house. The way that Harold is shot and killed, it's consistent with the shooter having been in a lower-lying area. The Gentry's Norwood home appeared to have been ransacked, so authorities postulated that Harold came home to a robbery in progress. He was known around town to own a large collection of antique clocks that he enjoyed fixing although the house showed no signs of a break-in. After Harold died, Betty collected $20,000 in insurance money. She also sold that family home and received her husband's military benefits. Betty told police that she was three and a half hours away in Augusta, Georgia, getting her truck fixed on the day Harold was killed. In the end, the police didn't find any motive or suspect in the homicide, so... Harold's case, much like the ones before them, sat for a long time among the other unsolved cases. After her fourth marriage ended in tragedy, the four-time widow took a hiatus in the love department and for half a decade, Betty didn't get involved in a romantic relationship. But love knows no bounds, and she eventually felt her heart flutter for a man named John Newmar. In 1991, when Betty was 60 years old, John and her got married. Their union was destined for the long haul. That is, until John died in October of 2007 in an Augusta hospital due to a lingering illness caused by a bacterial infection. Mr. Newmar's causes of death were determined to be due to a combination of sepsis, 
ischemic colitis, and ileus, all symptoms that could point to death by arsenic poisoning. Thus, knowing her background, it raised suspicion among John's relatives that Betty may have poisoned her 79-year-old husband. And their skepticism was strengthened when John's son, John Jr., told authorities he was never told by Betty of his father's passing. No, sadly, he only learned about it from reading it in the local paper. When he contacted the widow and inquired about the death, he was told that his father had already been cremated despite having previously bought a burial plot. John Jr. said, I mean, it's just strange. Why do you do that? I don't think my daddy ever said he wanted to be cremated. It was also found out that John Sr. and Betty declared bankruptcy a few years earlier due to their credit card debts, which amounted to more than $200,000. At about the same time John Sr. died, the brother of Betty's fourth husband, Al Gentry, had already succeeded in convincing authorities to reinvestigate his brother's death. Al knew what really went on in the marriage, and he tirelessly filed requests for authorities to reopen and renew their investigation into Harold's murder. He said that before Harold died, he confided into Al that his marriage with Betty was in shambles when he told him, never trust that woman. She isn't who she says she is. Moreover, the couple fought constantly, and she had asked him to move out of their home just before his murder. Finally, in 2008, 76-year-old Betty was arrested. Al's suspicions were further strengthened when he saw Betty emotionless during the arrest. He said, if she had gotten out of that car with tears in her eyes and asked me, why would anybody kill Harold? I would have never suspected her at all. But instead, Betty sounded defensive as she kept explaining her absence and establishing an alibi. Al believed Betty hired someone to kill Harold because he was seeing another woman. Moreover, Al inferred that Betty had Harold killed because he knew too much about her reprehensible activities and that she wanted to get a hold of his insurance payouts before Harold divorced her. In January of 08, Harold's murder case was assigned to former Stanley County Sheriff's Detective Lieutenant Scott Williams and Dr. Laura Petler, who was working as an investigator with the DA's office. After reviewing the case file and crime scene photos, they determined the burglary scenario looked staged. The six times Harold was shot also seemed excessive for a robbery gone wrong. It was an execution. It wasn't random shooting out of a robbery, Lieutenant Williams explained. And when they came across Betty's personal information, they made a startling discovery. She'd been married five times and all of her husbands were dead. Authorities also alleged that Betty used more than two dozen aliases, including on driver's licenses and passports. 
As a result of the authorities' efforts, Stanley County indicted Betty in July of 2008 on three counts of solicitation to commit the first-degree murder of Harold. It was alleged that she sought out a former police officer and her neighbor to kill her husband six weeks before his death, though if it was a hired killing, the perpetrator has never been identified. Two months after her indictment, Betty was released from the Stanley County Jail after posting a $300,000 bond. Then it was time to look into the claims of John Newmar Sr.'s relatives that he was poisoned by Betty. Investigators had John's ashes seized and analyzed for traces of arsenic, but the results came back negative. Dr. Petler explained, The ashes did have heavy metals in them, but there was no quantity that could be determined and therefore it was inconclusive. There was nothing else that could be done. Thus, John Newmar Sr.'s case was closed, which his family criticized. In 2009, the BBC aired a documentary about Betty entitled Black Widow Granny, which featured a rare interview of the widow. Her two daughters, Peggy and Kelly, believed their mother was innocent, with Peggy stating, She has been a caring, loving mother, and she's a loving, caring grandmother. I think that she was dealt a bad hand. Expectedly, Betty denied all the accusations against her, including the charges of soliciting Harold's murder. She described the people who accused her as nuts, saying, Later on, it's going to eat their heart out. The hate and discontent that they are living in now will make them miserable. She also admitted getting insurance money after Harold had died, but none from her first and third husbands. Despite the malicious and cruel accusations hurled against her, Betty said there was a space for forgiveness in her heart. She said, If you're going to heaven, you have to forgive. You don't have to forget, but you have to forgive. As of now, Betty Newmar's name is associated with a trail of six deaths, five husbands, and one son. But unfortunately, before she was put on trial, Betty died on June 13, 2011, due to complications of cancer in a hospital in Alexandria, Louisiana. Her own passing has diminished the chance of knowing the extent of her involvement in their deaths, most especially in the murder of Harold. Betty never set foot in any courthouse to face a grueling trial, and the truth, perhaps, was buried along with her. Betty Newmar was definitely not a saint, but was she a serial husband killer? The answer is only known by the Black Widow herself, who only had this to say. I cannot control when somebody dies. That's God's work. So that's going to do it, guys, for this week's episode of Everytown. Hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe and share us with your friends if you like it. 
And tune in next week for another episode filled with scary, strange, and mysterious stories. Because you never know. Maybe your town will be next. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.